This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm your host, Jeremy Bergeron, the Vice President of Media Strategy at Mission.org. And this is the show where twice a week, you'll get VIP access into the hearts and minds of some of the most influential marketers in the world. On Marketing Trends, we'll do two things. We'll go deep on a human level, and we'll go even deeper on the nitty gritty of what makes for the most successful marketers and strategies today. I'm glad you're here. Now let's get into it. A good company is built with good people. And as simple as that sounds, when it comes to hiring, you've got to find people with good energy on top of having a good resume. With her decades of experience marketing and tech, Michelle Don Durbin, the Senior Vice President of Marketing at Evernote, knows how to get the most out of herself and her team. And that boils down to her vision of setting good company culture. You're certainly going to be judged on what you get done. But how you get it done is just as important. When you spend your time, your career, surrounded by driven, ambitious people who are always trying to do more and have the next best idea and make more money, whether it's self-imposed because they're really smart and ambitious or it's part of a larger culture, there are some people who will use less than ideal tactics to get things done. And I really appreciated the idea that eBay said, it's not just what you're getting done, it's how you're working with others. It's how you're taking the community into account. It's what your peers think of you and how you're really helping the business overall. In this episode, Michelle gets into all things marketing and takes us on a deep dive into her strategy on hiring, unpacks the paid media strategy at Evernote, and shares a fun story about her work launching Skype with Oprah Winfrey. This episode is packed with great advice from an engaging leader. I know you're gonna enjoy this episode of Marketing Trends. Hey everybody, this is Jeremy Bergeron with Mission.org, your host for Marketing Trends. I'm super excited. Today on the show, we have Michelle Don Durbin, Senior Vice President of Marketing at Evernote. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to have you. Every time I get someone's name that says, hey, they're coming on the show, I immediately start looking up as much as I can, finding out who they are, and your background's awesome. I want to brag on you a little bit because the things that you've done is really cool. And so we'll get into some of that and some of the stuff you're doing. But just for context, and I know people are going to look you up as well when they hear this, but let me let you know who who Michelle is. So Michelle's been at Evernote for four years. She's the senior vice president at Evernote. Before that, VP of marketing at a company called Inflection. Before that, GMSVP at Cupid. Also spent time at a company called iFi. Then five years at Skype as the Director of Global Customer Acquisition and Director of Marketing of the Americas, and then four years at eBay as a Senior Manager, International Product Marketing, Cross-Border Trade, and Senior Manager, Marketing Strategy, Planning for Skype on eBay. Is that accurate? Yes, it all sounds right. Amazing. Cool. Okay. So I love to start here because I just want to know who we're talking to in terms of where your love of marketing started. Where was the genesis for you? What was, was it a campaign? Was it a brand? Was it a book? Where did this kind of interest in marketing start for Michelle? You know, when I started my career in Silicon Valley, because uh, I'm ancient, it was actually before the Y2K problem. So nobody even remembers that at this point, right? But, oh, the world will end because computers don't understand what's going to happen when we switch from the 19s to the 2000s. And I actually didn't know that much about marketing. I didn't know that much about the internet. And I got in with a a startup that was run by a very seasoned professional. And we were the first company to offer online insurance quotes, aggregated quotes, where you could put it. Now it's common practice, right? But 
back then, it was really a big deal to be able to put in your information and get quotes from three different insurance companies and make your choice. And that is really, that was my first internet job. I was the project manager, program manager. I was very good at handling deadlines and working with the creative team to make sure that they got things delivered. And it just sparked for me. It was young and it was vibrant and it was action-packed and we were doing things that people hadn't ever done before. And it's just attractive that way. And even throughout my entire career, the types of roles that I took had less to do with a, a plan to become a CMO and more to do with, wow, what is that company doing? Who are the people who are making it happen? And how much fun could we have on the job day to day? I love that. I want to comment on the Y2K thing because I do. <laughs> I actually remember that because my father, God bless you, dad, you're going to listen to this. My dad was one of those folks that we had water well drilled into our house. We had food in our you know, garage. We had, we had like prep for like six months for this. And my dad was convinced that Y2K was going to happen. So that was a, that was a real thing. It was a bit of a letdown, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. You know, everybody like hits January 1st, 2000. And you're like, all right, wait, the lights are still on. Yeah. The internet still works. What's happening? <laughs> nothing, nothing happened. Yeah. So it's, that's, it's just, that's funny. I haven't heard anyone bring that up in a long time, but that's cool. So it sounds also like curiosity got peaked for you early on. And then you started to kind of look at brands and companies and be really curious about what they're doing. And it seems like curiosity might be a thing that you've cultivated over time. Yeah. We spend so much of our day working that it, for me, at least, having something different happen all the time, being able to find new ways to approach what it is you're doing, actually even improving processes that help make it happen. All of this stuff is just a constant momentum towards something new and something different and something better. How about the time at eBay? I want to know about your experience there. I mean, look, you were there for four years. I'm sure exposed to some really cool things. And I'm just curious about some of the things you remember from that time, things you've learned, things you've brought with you even to this day at Evernote. eBay back then was remarkable. It was a real testing ground. And as somebody who, you know, I think back and I, I definitely had other roles at internet companies prior to eBay, but eBay is where I really cut my teeth. And I think... There are two things that jumped to mind immediately that I remember from the eBay days. The first one is that nothing got funded without data. We had an incredibly efficient process for prioritizing resources. Everybody, their ideas are great and people have ideas all the time, but the team allocating the resources wouldn't even consider something until a reasonable set of assumptions or a clear understanding of what success looked like was presented. And that is really important because ideas are one thing, but if you have no way to execute those ideas and you don't know what success looks like, you don't actually know when you've arrived and you don't know when you've failed. And getting the funding for something meant pulling together that use case, that business case, what you expected to happen. And it's a good exercise that I continue to ask all my teams to do today. I love that. I saw kind of on your, your bio that when you were at eBay, you were helping small business owners and startups. I am an SMB guy and I've served that world as well. So it's just so important to talk about the SMB market. And they're so important, especially now, of course, and, and there's so much shifting in that world. So what was that like serving that world for you and creating communities on eBay around this kind of SMB segment? eBay was at the forefront of what a community meant. And the people who ran the community at the time were remarkable people. We did things that well, probably diehard eBayers would remember, but things called eBay Live, where we literally just brought together anyone who loved eBay and bought or sold and had a huge event. And we coordinated classes, how to sell better, how to integrate other applications with it, how to build your own application to do what you want and connect it through the API with eBay. And thousands and thousands of people would show up. And that's when you really knew and you really understood that eBay had fundamentally changed the way people saw their own success and saw what they could do with their lives. And the stories that we would get out of that, they stick with you forever. 
the kid who didn't go to school because he was in a wheelchair and didn't feel comfortable starts an online business on eBay, buying and selling, and the mom and dad get involved and everybody is now part of it in their household. Wow. And those were not one-offs. Those happened all the time. That's amazing. It's a great launch pad for where you headed next, which was Skype. Were you at Skype before the acquisition? No. So the way that it worked was I was at eBay. I think at the time I was doing something with cross-border trade and we bought Skype. And they said, hey, we really need to get Skype integrated into eBay. We need to let eBay people know about Skype. And this was because it's hard to believe now, but unless you were an expat or had family overseas in the US, you didn't really know what Skype was. It was even before video calling. Uh, We launched video calling when we were, or pretty much launched it while eBay was there and, and tried to make something of it under eBay's umbrella having been bought by eBay. So I, I was tapped to move over to Skype. It was internal transfer at that time and start helping run the marketing team. We had only 13 people to run all of the Americas. And it was a really tight-knit team run by some really remarkable people. And the things that we got to do were, as you said in the beginning, in the intro, I was very lucky to be at the right place at the right time because it was just outstanding. I'm interested about the intersection of going from kind of marketer to marketing leader for you, because you started off tactician, executing, learning all these cool things. And then as you've rose through the ranks of some amazing brands, you became a marketing leader. What was the intersection like for you having to kind of now move into leading other people, leading a larger plan and strategy? Curious about that. Well, it had to do with another thing that I learned while I was at eBay. eBay had these values and, um, One of them was about having good how. So the idea was, it's really important what you get done. And you're certainly going to be judged on what you get done. But how you get it done is just as important. And so when you spend your time, your career, surrounded by driven, ambitious people who are always trying to do more and have the next best idea and make more money, whether it's self-imposed because they're really smart and ambitious or it's part of a larger culture, there are some people who will use less than ideal tactics to get things done. And I really appreciated the idea that eBay said, you know, it's not just what you're getting done, it's how you're working with others. It's how you're taking the community into account. It's what your peers think of you and how you're really helping the business overall. And I just have used a similar approach with my own teams. When you are really focused on making sure that people understand what it is that your expectation is from them, how it fits into a larger picture, that you want them to feel ownership of decisions, that you're here to help smooth their pathway and get their barricades out of their way, and that overall you really want them to be the owners of their work, then it's just worked out for me. I have some really amazing teams and moving from just being told, hey, do this and and trying to take it to, hey, here's what we're trying to get done. And then sharing that information with your team and then letting the team come up with these great ideas and test these great ideas and go back to the whole concept of you're not going to get funding unless you can present what success looks like. And oh, by the way, make sure you're doing it in a way that's constructive to the rest of the team and building a culture that we want. Maybe it's self-selecting. People who don't want to work in that environment might leave and people who do want to work in that environment will show up and they'll give you their best. For me, the the marketing leader role in a fast-growing company like Evernote, it's all about collaboration. You as the head of marketing, you're often sitting at this intersection of functions like product, finance, sales. It's really important for you to be aligned and really supporting the executive leadership team and the company as a whole towards this common goal of more growth, getting Evernote into the users, more companies and more users. How are you doing this? (laughs) Well, I'm not doing it single-handedly, that's for sure. I guess for me, it all comes down to this idea or a, a foundational marketing principle that great ideas don't really mean much without great execution. So it's not that I don't value ideas, but I don't worship them. I think I'll get more out of a good idea 
executed ruthlessly than a great idea that's executed adequately. And I think that's the pitfall when you sit at this intersection, because there are so many great ideas and there's so many people who are smart and driven and just bringing all that information to you. But without execution, even the best ideas, they can't become anything more than that initial concept. So if you can come up with how this thing will get executed, the execution is actually the test. That's how you can tell how useful it is. That's what measures the impact. That's what gauges the scale that you can have. And that's how you have to really approach these things that get put in front of you is to figure out, will they make it in the real world? When I see a marketing leader that's been at a brand, especially a brand like Evernote, for any length of time, there are these key things I feel like that you've built, like you said, idea plus execution, letting data really drive you. You've kind of kept that really close to your tool belt. I mean, clearly there's some awesome stuff that you're doing, but I mean, you're still there. You're still rocking it. What other things have you cultivated that allowed you to just continue to raise the bar and add more growth to Evernote? What else is there? Well, I came into Evernote at a very interesting inflection point. When I first joined Evernote, I was asked to come in and sort of create a true marketing function, one that definitely could work within Evernote's organization as a partner to the product teams, to the engineering teams, et cetera. And I did that. We certainly took some time and we pulled it together and we figured out where we could add value. And we consistently delivered on that until all of the internal teams trusted us that they wanted to get us involved in the process. They wanted to make sure that marketing was consulted early on to understand how we could take things to market. And that that was important. When we had our change of leadership and Ian Small came in, he had new ideas for what we were going to do. And deciding to rebuild your infrastructure and your apps as the foundational approach to a legendary journey that you would be on is a big step. Not a lot of companies do it. And he was pretty upfront. But what he brought into Evernote, the transparency, the collaboration, the high expectations for each of the leadership team's roles, that's a driver for me. That's something that keeps me very engaged and definitely kept my team engaged. So basically, I'd say it's about being flexible in what you think you're going to be able to do. So make plans, back those plans with data, put really good people in charge of those plans. And then be prepared for those plants to change. And that's one of the reasons why Evernote was so interesting for me and why I'm still there is, you know, that first year and a half that we were rebuilding the apps and the infrastructure, our customers had to be patient. They weren't seeing anything. They could see a few bug fixes here or there, small releases, but we were working behind the scenes. And so what the marketing team did was We crafted an entire behind-the-scenes series that we would put out regularly to keep our community engaged and understanding what was happening. And we brought them along for the ride. We took a beta program that had basically been designed as like a final QA step for very, very technical and advanced power users. And we expanded it globally. And we invited anyone in. It didn't matter You could be a free user, you could be a legacy plane user, you could be a power user, you could use it occasionally, you could be in any country, and we would ask you to come in, make sure we share with you beta versions, give you an area where you can talk to other beta testers, give you surveys where you can give us your feedback, and really trying to put the customers at the center of the entire process, because rebuilding your apps and infrastructure, and then relaunching all of your plans and creating new subscriptions with new feature sets that add value, that's a big deal. And if we did it in a vacuum without our community, we probably would have been hurting. As a fan of Evernote, going back to my early days at Google, I just remember Evernote, like everyone was using Evernote. And I remember there was such stickiness, like there was such this like insane stickiness around Evernote and still is to this day. And I'm curious about kind of your approach there, because it's clear that you really care about your community. And What are some of the things you did kind of in the earlier days to really, like you said, behind the scenes stuff, keeping them abreast of stuff, anything else you did or doing currently to really keep that, because that stickiness is there. It is. The thing about Evernote is that its history has been around note-taking, 
but note-taking to a degree where it's really your most important information put into Evernote. And that's one of the primary reasons why it's so sticky is because this becomes your knowledge repository. This is your second brain. And what we did was we expanded on our mission from remember everything, right? Which is your knowledge repository to remember everything and accomplish anything. And so that's what we've been doing to help make Evernote more useful and therefore more sticky is move beyond note-taking to offer our customers ways where they can do more, balance their day-to-day, get ahead at work, manage their teams. And some of these things people have been asking for for a long time and had actually been building their own workflows and their own workarounds because they loved Evernote so much and because all of their information was there. And so launching the new subscription plans that we have now basically packages that information, those features, those capabilities up into differentiated approaches so that we're hoping that people can come into Evernote and find exactly the right Evernote for them and actually also see a clear path as they use Evernote more, as Evernote becomes their tool of choice, as Evernote is something that they can't live without, they can see very clearly what the value is to move on and move up in their usage. That's awesome. I'm curious about marketing mix in terms of this high level, kind of some of the things you're you're doing from a marketing perspective. And also there's so much MarTech out there. I know as a company, we're evaluating stuff too. And I mean, if you, there's this decision tree online somewhere and it's all the MarTech. I mean, it's this like tree of all these, and there's so much. And a lot of it's really good. And a lot of it's stuff that I think brands should be looking at and evaluating. And so how do you as a leader balance, okay, what do we need? What are we using? But also keeping your hand on the pulse of like, what, what is important and what is next? You know, we're seeing some really interesting in business intelligence around marketing tech stacks, but you could also get buried in that. You could be looking at stuff all day long, all year long. There's so many options. How do you view that ever-evolving, ever-changing kind of MarTech space and pulling in what you need or what you see valuable? Are you always kind of testing things and thinking about what's next or you have a solid foundation of stuff, you kind of stick with that? We have both. So remarkably, when you think about all of digital marketing, all these MarTech tools that are out there for us, we're really heavy on what I would call one side of digital marketing and almost non-existent on the other. We do almost no paid marketing. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Okay. Okay. We have a small bit of ad spend in the app stores, keywords, that kind of thing. But our brand, our owned channels, like we have so many people come and register at Evernote simply because of our brand reputation, word of mouth. The biggest channel that we have for new users is our existing base. Wow. And that is how it has always been. And and this is why the community is so important to us. What we're doing now that we have the apps and infrastructure rebuilt and we have this new perimeter within which we can work is we're really focused on providing education, real life use cases, and packaging that up into snackable portions so that our customers can quickly get in, understand how Evernote can solve something for them, open their eyes to something that they hadn't tried on Evernote before. And if you are an influencer, if you are a lover of Evernote, you can actually use this material in your own networks and share it and explain how Evernote is working to support you and how it helps you balance your life or be more productive at work. I think you're going to see some really exciting things come out of Evernote in the coming months that are around certifications. Could you become an Evernote expert or a specialist? Training courses. When we relaunched our new plans, we put something like 60 new how-to videos online in one go just to show people these new features like tasks or connecting your Google Calendar into Evernote and not only how to do it, but why you would want to do it. And when you do that, then your base is experiencing real value from your product, continuing to expand their use of it. And then when they're having that conversation with a friend of theirs who's saying, God, I wish I could keep the kids' schedule together, or I wish I could get that promotion at work, 
they actually have in their head an explanation of how Evernote could help you do that. Wow. So you really double down on your existing base of users and customers, and you actively market to them, you educate them, you're supporting them. It says so much about the brand and it says so much about what's been done right. You really rely on that as like your main channel. That's amazing, first of all. But what else are you doing to market to that existing user base to bring on new customers? Uh, Well, that's a big, broad sweep of what we're doing for that user base to bring on new customers. Additionally, like I said, we definitely are looking to optimize in the app stores. We get over the majority of our new user registrations comes from mobile users, right? Evernote on mobile. We do experiment from time to time with paid advertising in ad networks, more traditional like that. We have content strategies to help see if we can drive additional coverage and acquisition. Obviously, we use PR in the way that everybody else is going to use PR and try to find outlets that are friendly to us. We haven't really done any kind of big brand campaigns or awareness campaigns could be in the future, but we really think that the people who are using Evernote are the ones who are the best place to tell our story. When you think about an incoming marketing leader, an incoming CMO, incoming you know head of marketing like yourself, what are some of the skill sets you think they need? They need to know how to build high-performing teams because you're going to find inspiration from the people that you're working with. They're going to be interacting with your users. They're going to be interacting with other people within the organization. And they need to know how to get things done and how to bring new ideas into the fold. How do you go about building a high-performance marketing team? What are some of the priorities you establish, you know, short, mid, long-term? Like, what is kind of your thinking there? Because I'm sure you've built a team there over time in your four years plus. What do you look for? And how do you begin to build and keep and maintain a high-performing marketing team? Well, the first thing I definitely do is I hire really close to the anticipated need. So I don't over-hire for an aspirational program or a goal. I tend to be pretty conservative with our budgets. And so what I'll do is we'll start out with a test approach to something. Like, for example, let's say we want to expand in a new social media channel and maybe you've got your social media. And so you work with that person to see what that would look like and build out a concept and a plan and what would success look like. You start testing and iterating. And when it looks like there's something there, then you can start pulling together the type of role that you would need, the type of capabilities that you would want. And each one is going to be a little bit different. Sometimes you're going to need people who know how to take information and really analyze it very tightly and find insights from it. Sometimes you're going to need a big idea person who also knows how to, let's say, convince others of what it is that they're trying to do. Each time is going to be a little bit different depending on what it is you're trying to accomplish. But if you have an idea of what success is and you know what you're tracking to. So for example, like I said, we don't do a lot of paid media right now. So I don't have anyone dedicated. I have no paid media expert on my team right now. However, I work really closely with our growth team. And what we've done is we've taken some marketing managers who know how to run campaigns and we've used some external agencies. And we've sort of pulled together a plan to do a really nice test of a ton of creative, a ton of different messages, a ton of different channels, different targets, etc. And we're just pulling all that together and seeing what that looks like right now. So we can identify whether or not we're even within the range to get a reasonably priced CAC, cost of acquisition, right, of new users and see what that would look like. And if we can get within that range, I probably will be able to make a case for bringing in a growth marketer focused exclusively on acquisition, but I'm building that case first. What are your thoughts on kind of agency versus in-house? Some marketing leaders I've spoken to across the Fortune 100 and 500, like some of them are like staunchly opposed to the agency model. Some have a mix, some want to build internally. How do you view that now? I don't have a hard and fast rule. It really depends for this particular instance, the paid media. We had worked with an independent person in the past at a past company. And so we basically asked if he was available, he was free, he could do this for us, and that works. But if it does work, 
that particular organization may not be at the scale that we would need. And so we might then have somebody in-house that we would hire to do some of the planning. And then that person would make the recommendation. Do we stick with this one consultant? Do we go to a small agency? How big of a budget do we need, et cetera? We use a PR agency in the United States, but we don't use one in Japan. We do this because where we're at in each of the markets and what we need is a little bit different. We do have a PR agency who covers some countries in Europe for us, however. So it's really just a matter of what your goals are, how you're going to get there, and then you can decide, is it going to make sense for us or not? What's kind of how your view for B2B versus B2C and how you approach those two? For Evernote in particular, out of the four offerings that we have, three of them are geared towards individuals. So most of our business is built around the individual. However, that said, there are a lot of individuals, something upwards of 85% of people who are paying us take Evernote to work for them. So I think we do have a strong SMB product called Evernote Teams, and it is designed around this knowledge sharing, the ability for you to be working on things and make that information available to other people on your team. It is still part of our business. It is still a focus for us. It continues to improve even as the individual offering improves. We always make sure that the team's customers get the same improvements, if not more. And it will continue to be part of our business. And I think one of the places that we would want to take a look in the future would be how easy is it for somebody to be using Evernote on their own and then to seamlessly sort of move into a team's product. And what would that look like? And how can you self-manage it, et cetera, so that I, for example, could offer it to 30 people on my team and see how that looks. And some of them may want it, some may not, depending on how much of an advocate I am. But overall, that it's very easy for you to be on Evernote, whether you're an individual or whether you're a team working within a larger organization. I saw that Evernote had a couple of podcasts in the past when I was looking up, just looking up the brand and seeing if they were in the market, looks like it's been a little while. It's not active. I love that idea. Obviously, we're in that space. So I'm curious about your thoughts around that. Specifically, did that channel not really work well? Are you interested in getting back to that from the consumer level or the business level? How do you view that channel? Well, I'd love to get back to it. It was a very cool thing. And Evernote is truly a subject matter expert when it comes to productivity. The channel... It has been a little while, and that's really because of the changes that we had in the leadership and the change in the focus that we had. Prior to Ian coming in, there was a lot of money going towards large brands and content plays. And then we've just sort of pulled back so that we could begin this journey of rebuilding our apps and infrastructure and sort of getting ourselves to a point where we can accelerate into growth. And so now that we're looking into next year, and now that we're looking into everything that we've done and the fact that the changes that we've made so far are already proving themselves out. More people are actually finding more reasons to upgrade or more reasons to use Evernote than ever before. Then I think you'll start to see us reintroduce a lot of the things that put us into that SME space, subject matter expert space. I want you to reflect on your four years at Evernote and pick your best day and your most challenging day and what happened on those two days. Well, my best day was definitely the day we relaunched our new packages because as the head of product marketing, my role is pricing and packaging and how to bring our apps to market, how to bring our new features to market, et cetera. And I was really proud of us because changing your entire SKU lineup, your entire subscription lineup is massive. And there wasn't a single person at the company who wasn't working on this repackaging effort. And that effort had been underway since my team presented it in 2018. So it was a long time coming, sort of this the strategic view and what we were going to need to do and what types of features were going to be in this and how this was going to work and where the roadmap fit and how we could adjust. And we designed to go to market that was geared toward making that transition as simple and as positive an experience as possible for the people who already used Evernote. We weren't using it as a massive launch pad to say, hey, look at us again. Instead, we said, look, if you've been a longtime customer of Evernote and you've been 
paying us, we want your experience to be uninterrupted. And a lot of you who are paying us full price, for example, like what the current going rate is for the plans, we're actually going to give you more and you don't have to do a thing. For those of you who have been on a legacy plan, you know, something that was really discounted very early on, and we love that you're on it. We don't know if these new things are going to be that appealing to you at the new price. So we're just going to keep you on that plan. And we're going to have uninterrupted service there. And if you're free, we're not taking anything away from you. And that was really important to us to keep our existing customer base at the center of that. And I'm very proud of the way that worked. That's a big bet. I want you to tell you your most challenging day too, but like that's a, that's a big bet. You said a lot of planning. Look, this isn't just like rolling out a feature change of like, hey, start testing a new campaign. Like you're placing a big bet on this rollout and it clearly worked. I get that. That's huge. So that's amazing. How about your most challenging day? I think my most challenging day was when we relaunched our new apps. We did a rolling launch as the apps were available. So we went out with iOS first and other platforms followed. And we knew that these were going to be brand new. We knew that it's built on a brand new infrastructure. We did so much testing. We did so much work to make them as high quality as possible. And one of the places that we weren't as loud as we needed to be, we were certainly forthcoming and we were certainly transparent, but maybe we didn't put enough emphasis on it, was that some of the features that existed in our legacy apps weren't yet available in the new apps when we launched them. So for the majority of people, the new apps were going to be fine, right? What you were doing on your day-to-day, how you were managing things was absolutely fine. And we made it possible for you to stay on legacy apps. We weren't forcing you onto the new apps in the beginning. And we made it possible for you to revert back to them. And in fact, on desktop, we even made it possible for you to have a legacy app and a new app together on your same computer. But our power users, the ones who had really been with us for a long time, you know, even though we made that possible, even though we said, hey, not every feature will be available in this very first version of the new apps, and it might take a couple months for them to show up, I think my team, we could have done a better job messaging to that particular set of customers. And I'm sorry that we didn't. It meant they were upset. And I think rightly so when they tried the new app and then they said, wait, but you've broken my workflow because I can't do X or Y. You know, you don't have import folder anymore or some other feature. And it's one of the reasons we were so explicit and so transparent in the repackaging we sent a lot of pre-coms. We made sure people were hearing about it. They didn't know the details, but they knew that their particular set of features would remain the same. They wouldn't be losing anything and they wouldn't be having any kind of surprise price increases because we wanted to make sure they understood how this was impacting them. That's what I learned from that, our launch of our new apps. How we managed to get Skype video calling truly launched in the US because it, it was with Oprah Winfrey. That was our deal. It was a very interesting story. Okay. Tell us a story about Oprah Winfrey and (laughs) and launching Skype Live. Yeah. Skype video. So at Skype, it's so funny. If you live in Silicon Valley, right, you always have branded where. And I could go anywhere on a plane. I could be anywhere. And if I wore something that was eBay branded, man, everybody wanted to talk to me. Right. And which is great. Right. It's fun. You can share your stories. When I went over to Skype, I didn't get a peep. Nobody knew Skype. Nobody got it. And we tried more traditional approaches for, I'd say, about a year. Paid advertising, some localized TV spots with remnant inventory that we could afford. Things like this, SEO, to try to capture different search terms. And video calling got launched. And still, people thought it was futuristic. They thought they would have to always have makeup on or they would have to clean up their background constantly. And we were trying to make it mainstream. I mean, now, thinking about COVID and thinking about how everybody is doing it, it seems so natural, right? From your your six-year-old dialing into their classroom to your parents who are doing it on their phone. Everything about video calling now is so commonplace. And yet at the time, it felt like the Jetsons to people. And we were really sort of stumped and we got this call from somebody on the production crew of the Oprah Winfrey show. And she wanted to host 
the largest ever book review for her book club. And she wanted her audience to be able to talk to her. And originally, they approached us just to make it really easy for people to call in for free and what have you. But they knew about the video calling. And I think I said we had only 13 people to run all of the Americas. And so we did this partnership with Oprah Winfrey. And we had all of us, 13 people, on a regular basis, we get this call, be like, you need to ship a laptop and a camera and a microphone and a headset to this address. And it needs to be there tomorrow. And we had tech guys on contract who would actually go to somebody's house and help them set up their equipment so that it would be high quality for Oprah. And we did this for, I think it was six or eight weeks every week making this happen. And she loved it so much. And it was so easy to include people on the show this way, rather than flying them in, that she wanted to then use Skype on her show regularly. And within the next year, you could walk down the street and wear my Skype branded stuff. And I would have somebody stop me and say, oh my gosh, do you know Skype? Oprah loves Skype. And that was brilliant, right? Because if Oprah Winfrey could use Skype and could be talking about how fun and easy it was. And she's really good about her brand. So she doesn't endorse things easily, but it worked for her. And she loved it so much that everybody felt that if Oprah could do it, I could do it. And we were really hitting a very good audience for us, which is, I think, like the chief memory officer, right? That person in your family could be the mom, could be the dad, somebody else, but who wants to keep the family relationships alive, wants to generate memories. And when people were disconnected by distance, then Skype could do that. And that fundamentally changed how we marketed Skype. We moved to a very touching, connected, personal type of use cases, like missing Thanksgiving dinner or watching a football game together over video. My creative director at the time His wife was studying to be a vet in the UK, and they literally left Skype video open all day on their table, and it felt like they were living together because you'd come in and out of rooms, and it it was felt so natural. We started showing TV spots of these types of things and video ads of that, and we actually established the Skype for Broadcast program so that we could get a Skype logo on a screen when it was getting used. So CSI Miami wanted the main character to video call with his son who was away in the military. And sure enough, there's a little Skype logo on the screen. News outlets started using it. So they really brought video calling into the mainstream because we made it easy for them, in my mind, because Oprah Winfrey said she could do it and she loved it. (laughs) That's fantastic. The Oprah effect, it's real. It's very real. (laughs) It was for us, that's for sure. I love that. That's awesome. So cool. Well, let's move into our lightning round. I've got some kind of cool hot seat questions. I just love this one, Michelle. Thank you so much for being here. I just appreciate your time. So thanks for being here. Let's move in to the Marketing Trends podcast that's brought to you by Salesforce. Salesforce brings marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com forward slash marketing. Lightning round, first question. We have Michelle Don Durbin, Senior Vice President of Marketing at Evernote slash Baller of Life slash Mom slash Amazing Human. She's here with us. First question, Michelle, what is your favorite feature of Evernote? My old favorite feature of Evernote, emailing something into Evernote. So you get that receipt from the iPhone protection plan you just purchased for your 12-year-old's phone that you know is going to break in the next month. And it comes in email and I just forward it and it goes right into my Evernote account. And I know it's there and it's handy so that when I'm standing at the counter trying to get the screen replaced the next time and I know I have it, it's right there in Evernote for me. So that was my old favorite thing. My new favorite thing is the filtered notes widget. And on the home screen at Evernote, we now have this filtered notes widget where you basically go in and you set whatever criteria you want, and we'll only show you the notes that relate to that. So I use a little bit of a getting things done GTD method for productivity. So I have an inbox of things that need to get processed, so to speak. And then I have the things that I'm doing right now. And then I have the things that are important, but I'm not going to do until the future. 
And at any point when I have a break in my day or I have a little chance to go in, I can take a look at each of these widgets that I have set up and see the items that are in them. And now that notes have tasks in them with deadlines for each task or reminders for each task, it's really easy for me to sort of prioritize the things that I'm doing right now this week and also see what things in the future need to be moved into the this week bucket. And so I love that filter piece switching. Who is one of your mentors? Well, he's totally going to think it's a suck up. But the truth is that Ian Small, my current CEO, is definitely one of my mentors. He is such a thoughtful human being. He is never quick to assume. He loves to take a breath and ask a few questions before getting to action. And I am action-oriented. And he has really taught me, hold on, just take the three breaths it's going to take. Think if there's anything that you're missing. Are you making assumptions on anything? What do you really need to know? And then move forward. And that has been a tremendous improvement to how I operate and to even just the confidence you have in moving forward and how you can then engage other people because you do have those pieces of the puzzle. And when they ask you a question, you actually already know it. You feel really alive when blank. When there's a lot going on. I like to say that uh, I'm at my best when I'm in the middle of a hot mess. (laughs) (laughs) So, however, so that's how I felt in the last two and a half years at Evernote as we've been rebuilding everything and moving to repackaging. And now we're actually at a pretty stable point and it really is just about accelerating into growth. So I've got to really get in there and find some cool new things for us to do. Can you tell us about a time when you made a powerful choice? Okay, personal, professional, anything in between. One time that immediately jumps to mind is the first time I had to fire someone. It's a terrible spot to find yourself in. I had hired this person myself. I had attempted to coach this person for nine months. And they simply were unable to do the job that we hired them for. And what made it so powerful for me was that I learned that you can do this horrible thing with kindness and with that person's best interest still at heart. You know, the realization that if you yourself are doing a bad job or you know that the team is picking up the slack for you and that you just don't seem able to do what you need to do, that is not a fun place for you. And you don't want to come into the office every day and do that. And that realization was eye-opening for me. And it meant that when I had the conversations with this person and we talked through what a transition could look like, I could be very generous and I could be kind. And in the end, everything worked out. Obviously, she got into a job that was much better suited for her at a different company, really has succeeded, grown her career over time. And even at one point in my past, she approached me again and asked me if I was interested in another role at her company because it had been such a positive experience for her. And so, yes, that is one of those times where it was a very big decision for me, but it was powerful in what I learned from it and what I could take away from it. What's something you keep learning again and again? I keep learning that customers will always surprise me. My team, we worked so hard to get the value messaging right and to put what we think is the right thing in front of you at the right time and to minimize distractions for you, but still get you information that we know is going to make your life easier. And I'm always surprised by what gets absorbed and what gets rejected. And this idea that even though you have your own opinion and you're a user of your software, that you, <laughs> that you don't know everything. And there are a lot of people out there who are doing things quite uniquely. I don't know. It's very surprising every time. In fact, we've started to say on my team that there are as many ways to use Evernote as there are Evernote users because everyone is so unique in how they think about Evernote. And remarkably, most people, especially those who are very active on our forums or in the community, 
can't understand how other people don't use it the same way they use it. I had friends at Google like that too. They just didn't get it. They were like, you get cross over to the Evernote side, stop playing around, become a power user or die. I had friends like that. (laughs) What do you love and appreciate about yourself? I pretty much can work with just about anyone. I'm a very positive person overall, but it's an honest positivity. I can be a grump and be upset about things with the best of them, but I'm very adaptable. And being adaptable means that it doesn't have to be my way all the time. And I think I'm better for being able to incorporate other views and other ways of doing things. And just at least in my own personal history, I find that many people would enjoy working with me again. And I feel the same way about them. Mm, I love it. Okay. Last question. If you weren't in marketing, what would you be doing? Well, It's a very good question because I've thought about it a lot in the sense that I've actually said often that my favorite job is actually being a mom. And when I have floated that idea long ago to my husband and I said, hey, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking instead of two kids, maybe we should have 10 kids. And his answer is is pretty consistent. He says, I'm sure you and your new husband will be very happy with that. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) and so um, he's convinced that I would lose my mind. But I really do (laughs) think that being a mom uh, is one of those things that I would really enjoy. We have four under the age of four at our house. So we've got twin 19-month-old boys and then... I have a girl that's three, and then my partner has a three-year-old son. So we essentially have two sets of twins at home. Oh my goodness. It's wild. So I can only imagine. We're having fun, for sure. (laughs) But Michelle, you killed it. Thanks so much. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, The messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.